especially the kids who are still here, you'll know that I love Lego. I love Lego. I still do. Ever since I was a kid, I loved it. I have Lego in my office. We have Lego at our apartment. In fact, uh, when my birthday rolled around in May, my wife, knowing me fairly well, took me downtown to the Lego store. It was the best. I love Lego so much that uh, a few years ago, well, we, could, we don't have to say that it's a few years ago, when I didn't get Lego for Christmas, I was sorely disappointed. As a Lego lover, you can imagine that my year was made at the announcement of the Lego movie. I was like a child too, watching the trailer over and over. And when the movie came out, I got to see it in theaters. And I basked in amazement at how this movie so perfectly embraced everything as a child that I had done. All the building, all the creations, everything. It was fantastic. And as I watched, like probably many of you, especially if you're a parent, I got a certain song stuck in my head. A song that will probably now be running through your head for the rest of the sermon, but it's a risk we have to take. The song, if you don't know, goes like this. Everything is awesome. That's the line that's repeated over and over and over again. It opens like a musical uh, overture. The main character comes out and is greeted by all the other Lego characters and they all sing together. Everything is awesome. And basically the, the gist of the song is if we all play our part, if we all follow the right instructions, which is weird because they're kind of building themselves, but we'll leave it alone. If you do the right things, everything is awesome. And they function in this kind of world where they think everything's doing well. And more than just enjoying that, I think, and I'll admit, I go through life like that sometimes. I go around and I'm like, everything's going well. It might not be awesome, but my life is is doing pretty well. And I say, God, thanks for where you've brought me and I'm doing well. You can check on uh, me, you know, once every Sunday and then maybe Wednesday afternoon, give me a little poke so I know what's going on, but I'm generally doing pretty well. And if we're honest, I think a lot of us function that way. We say, God, you have done some miraculous things in my life, but you have brought me here and now I'm good. My life is awesome or good or doing well. And and God, I'm glad you're there, but I kind of got this. I'll be honest, I was there this week. Even with this sermon, I was like, okay, God, give me some inspiration, but then I'll just run with it and I'll write we're honest, we are there too. We don't, uh, it doesn't escape us that God has done things in our life, but we function on a daily basis that we're kind of self-sufficient. And as we conclude our series this morning, as we've looked at the life of David, it's not surprising that after all of this, that's where we find David. We find David in in somewhat of a self-sufficient, I'm doing well, God, thanks for what you've done for me, kind of mood. But we're going to see that David has an encounter with God. And we're going to see what happens when David encounters God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you can turn there today, we're going to open up in that book. Now, if you didn't notice from the, the reading this morning earlier... 
we backtracked a little bit. Pastor Ralph last week took us all the way to chapter 18 talking about David and his sons. And I did not just randomly choose a passage and Ralph said, fine, you can run with it. This is intentional. Because David's encounter with God will drastically change his life and will establish David for generations to come. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Hopefully you found your way there, if you have a Bible. If you look at the first verse, I, I kind of picture David like this. David wakes up. He's in his nice, cushy bed. He is King David. He is the man. So it's probably a nice uh, memory foam mattress, some nice pillows that are made of the finest feathers from somewhere, we don't know where. And he, he gets out of bed and he goes to his uh, luscious jacuzzi. Somehow, even though they don't have electricity, there's, there's a tub bubbles coming out and, and he enjoys the morning. He goes, he says, well, I guess I should check what I have to do today. So he wanders uh, into his throne room in his house and he says, scribes, wh- what do I have to do today? They look. Um, well, one, you have to be a part of a ribbon cutting at the New Jerusalem Zoo of Exotic Animals. All right. Second, you have a, a luncheon for the undefeated King David-sponsored archery team. Anything else? That's pretty much it. King David didn't have a lot to do. Things were going well, and so uh, he decided, well, I'll spend my morning, like he did most mornings, wandering his amazing home. He'd look around. Man, that was beautiful. The, the woodworkers, the carpenters had done a fantastic job and some of the marble was the nicest that he had ever seen. You could almost see his reflection in it. Well, after uh, looking at his house, he decided, well, why, why don't I go for a walk? Well, I'll just uh, go around and he went around mo- like he did most days. And he would kiss the heads of babies as he walked by. He would greet the store owners. Women would faint over him. He was the best man in all of the city. He would occasionally uh, greet some of the little kids and he would have a a fake sword fight with them and he usually lost. Things were good. The women would come to him and say, David, we love having our wives home, or we love having our husbands home. There hasn't been a battle in, in almost a year. This is great. Life is perfect. Well, after the luncheon, David was trying to think, what? Now what do I do? I've toured my house. I've made my appearance in the city. I could go practice archery. No, I don't want to get changed and my armpit has been chafing from practicing too much. I could play another joke on the servants in my house. I could switch two things and see how long it took them to notice. Uh, I did that yesterday. What can I do? There's nothing to do. There's no battles to fight. There's no problems. Everybody's set. What what am I going to do? I know. Why, why don't I build a temple for God? That seems like a good idea. You know, God's done a lot for me. Oh, I'll just build him a temple. Seems like a good idea. Then Nathan, Prophet Nathan, come over here. Come over here. What if I just build a temple for God? It'll take a lot of time. I don't have anything else to do. I could make it nice. You know, God would like that. He's done a lot for me. But eh, it, it'll take up my time mostly. Nathan said, well... Seems like an alright idea. It doesn't seem like a bad one. 
If we look in verse 4, Nathan's response to David is quickly changed that night when God greets Nathan. And we see that for the next 12 verses that God had a message for Nathan to tell David. It was a message that would completely change David's life and the way that he functioned on a daily basis. We see in verse 5 through 7 that God starts out by first correcting David. He says, you think you can build me a temple? I've never had a temple Ever since the moment that I started my relationship with the Israelites, I have never had a temple. What, thinks, what makes you think that I'm discontent with where I am? In all of the relationships that I've had with uh, the judges and the people who have been in charge of the Israelites, in all of those relationships, never once did I ask any of them, I want the temple. So what makes you think that if I didn't say it to you, that you should go and do it? In other words, David... This isn't your call. This is mine. You're not in charge of this. But more than that, he moves forward. And in verses 8 and 9, God points out to David, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you went and cut off your enemies from before you. David's lackadaisical, I've already made it, life is good, is met with God's reality. God points him back to the beginning and points out that until he got a hold of David, that David was nowhere. And David was nobody. As we think back over our series, we remember that David wasn't even selected by his father to go meet uh, the prophet Samuel. He was the runt of the litter, and, and his father said, oh, he doesn't really need to be shown. He's not as large or as masculine as the rest of his brothers. But God intervened. God points, his, uh, points back and, and jogs David mind, David's mind and says, uh, Goliath, you really think you did that on your own? I've been with you every step of the way. I have brought you here. David, God says, no amount of your physical stature, your leadership lessons, your, your battle skills, nothing uh, could have brought you to where you are today. God shows David that it's only in David's continual relationship with God that he's not, for that reason, he's not tending the same sheep he did years ago. God's clear reminder that he is in control of David's life is only the background. Its only purpose is to set up what God wants to say next. Because in the next two verses, God promises David three different things. Three different things that will uh, take place during the rest of David's life. First, God promises David that he will make his name great. Then he promises David, and he says, David, uh, I am going to make sure that all your people, that all of Israel has a place where they can settle and live and third, he says, and there they will not be bothered by the people around them. Well, as we think through this series thus far, we see that God has already been working out these promises during David's life. As Israel is almost settled and uh, most of the nations are defeated and David's name is growing in greatness, God says, I'm not done with your life. 
I'm not done. Imagine that by the time Nathan got through telling David this part, that David's demeanor had greatly changed from the day before. Imagine him starting to try to respond. But Nathan cuts him off. He says, you don't even get it. That's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's the smallest part. What I have to tell you next, what God told me next, is so much greater than all that I've just told you. What's next has been described as one of the most important texts in the Old Testament. In God's final promise, promises to David, we see how incredibly unique of a relationship that God had with David. Look back into uh, verse 5. When God opens uh, saying to Nathan, he says, uh, Say to my servant David. God considers David uh, solely his, completely sold out and given over to God's purpose. Uh, God recognizes that they have a unique relationship. The last person that God said, You are my servant to in the same way was Moses. They have a unique standing. And as God brought David this far and he has seen how David was committed, it moves God to make the promises that we see next. And what we first see is that in verse 12 that these promises take place after David's death. God's faithfulness to David continues on past his own life and to the next generations. God says that one of his sons, one of David's sons, uh, will rule. And just as David's kingdom has flourished, so too will his sons flourish. God promises that during that rule that God will be with him and that he will uh, discipline him as needed. And he promises uh, that he won't take his love away from him. God reminds David, he points back and says, you remember Saul? I did take my steadfast love away from him says this is unique but it's also another reminder that God has been orchestrating things since before David was even king each of these are amazing promises but in verse 16 we see that God has saved the best for last he says there and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever David your family will always rule. Because of our relationship, your line will always be in charge. It will always be on the throne. God says, I will be there along with you. It will be before me. Now you may be thinking, as I was a little bit, this is great, and we understand how uh, David gets pretty excited about this, but there's a lot of other passages that seem almost more important. But we get our answer when we think about Solomon. David's son, if you haven't read ahead after the life of David, Solomon uh, takes over the throne after David. If you know the story of Solomon, he does indeed flourish. He uh, successfully eradicated lying and arguing between children by threatening uh, to cut a baby in half. No one ever argued over dolls after that. But if you know the story of Solomon, you know that he fails miserably. And at the end of Solomon's life, God comes to him and says, You 
have uh, done so poorly and I am so angry with you that I am ripping away all but one tribe of the kingdom from you. And the only reason that it will stay with your son as he rules after you is for the sake of David, not you. Solomon fails. But that's what makes this passage so great. Because this passage points to a king whose kingdom will be established forever. To a king who God promises in verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. Promise of the perfect descendant of David, Jesus Christ. He is the one whose throne is established forever. He is the perfect fulfillment of these promises. When we look at the Christmas story, often we know when Mary is visited by the angels, she gets scared and the angel says, Do not be afraid. You're going to have a son. He'll be the son of God and his name will be Jesus. But what we don't see often after that is what the angel says next. In Luke 1.32 he says, He will be great of Jesus and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the promises given by God to David. Now, if these promises were merely pointing to David's earthly descendants, it would be easy to see this passage as as one to celebrate, uh, but purely just see, well, God's done a lot through David. That's, That's great. And we could get excited as a church and say, wow, this has been a cool series and, and it is inspiring to pursue God together. But you and I, as believers, as Christians, are reminded by Paul and Galatians that we have been unified with Christ. That this, these promises to David through Jesus Christ extend to you and I. And that moves it from one that we celebrate with David to ones that we celebrate ourselves because we reap the benefits of these promises. To put it in different terms, uh, who was excited when the Blackhawks won a few weeks ago? Wow, that's pathetic. Some of you might have been in your house. Some of you might have been brave enough to go to Wrigleyville. Some of you might have been even lucky enough to be in the stadium. And you, no matter where you are, you probably went crazy and you were so incredibly excited and it was awesome and it was. But imagine how pathetic that would be as compared if you were on the ice with a Blackhawks jersey on as a part of the team and Duncan Keith skates up to you with the Stanley Cup and says, you're next. And you get to skate around the rink saying, we won, we won, I am a part of this. Celebrating even in the first row wouldn't even compare. Through Christ, that is what these promises become. They move from uh, us just being observers to being uh, partakers. We get to enjoy them alongside David because of Jesus Christ. Now, God has effectively turned the tables on David. Nathan told uh, David all that God had told him. 
His life is completely altered. His mindset has gone from this lackadaisical one to one who is completely changed. But what will be his response? Look at the next part of our passage. We see that David goes. He strips away all of his kingly dignity and he sits before the Lord. He assumes a posture of worship. And what we see in verse 18 is he opens and says, Who am I, God? Who am I? And who is my house? Who is my family that we would get this? In other words, I don't deserve this. And if you've been here the past two weeks, you know that David doesn't deserve it. Even though this is before, the, before David's greatest sin in David and Bathsheba and the story of that, we know that already in his life, David's made mistakes. He is unworthy of what God has just promised him. And as David openly admits, God, I don't deserve this. He, he looks and he says, God, I know. I see that you have brought me thus far, this far. And then in verses 19 through 20, the reality of all that God has said seems to come crashing down on him as he says this. He says, this was a small thing in your eyes, God. He says, God, I'm blown away at all you have done in my life. And yet in your eyes, this is nothing. Time and time again, you have saved me, and yet for you, this is nothing. And David moves on to say, he says, there's more to come, you just told me. And David almost seems to get tongue-tied because he says, you know me, God, what, what else can I say? I'm amazed. He's absolutely floored. He's flooded with the reality that without God, he would be nothing. When we look forward at David's response in, in verses 21 and 22, he says, Lord, because of your promise and according to your heart, you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, God. There's none like you. There's no God like you. As, as David realizes what has just happened, he is met with God's greatness. God, there's no one. There's no, there's no one like you. No one can compare. And just as David celebrates the greatness of who God is, as he praises God for making Israel, he also praises God for making Israel his chosen nation. David praises God in verses 23 and 24 for how he delivered them from Egypt. He says, not only are you great, God, but you chose to make Israel great. And he points back to that moment that moment of salvation for Israel. And he says, you chose your people. David's recognition that this isn't just about me. You didn't just save me. You saved your people for yourself. How often do we not look back and say, God, where did you start with me? I hope that we never forget where we were when God met us. Just as David says, this is where you met Israel. I hope we go before God and say, this is where you met me. And ever since then, my life has never been the same. 
David's posture of worship now shifts from praise at who God is and all He has done to one of a reiteration of all that God will do. He says, God, confirm your word in verse 25. Confirm what you have said. And this isn't a doubt on David's part. He says, God, I know that you're going to do this. Just please do it. God doesn't look for David's affirmation. He says, these promises seem good. What do you think, David? No. David's saying, God, this is awesome. Do what you have said. In verse 27, he says, God... With all of your greatness and with all of what you had done, I am only able to come before you knowing, knowing that you first came to me and you have promised this thing to me. As David goes before God asking him to confirm his promises, we see David embracing that role as God's servant. Seven times in these last verses he says, as you confirm this to your servant, as you do these things for your servant, he repeatedly says, I am all yours, God. I have no claim over my own life. Do these things. And then we see that David closes. And he says, God, continue to bless my family. And if not for all that had taken place, we would think David closes asking God to do something for him. But it's just David further saying, God, I am at your will. Bless my family so that we may glorify you. As we look at David's response, it should not escape us that God has worked in our own lives. He's worked in miraculous ways just because God has not come before us and said, look, this is what I've done for you. does not mean that we should respond any different than David responds. We need to respond in the way that David does with complete awe at who God is. God, you are incredible. God, I cannot believe that without you that I would be nothing. David comes before God in a posture of worship and he says, this is incredible. He can't even speak because he is so gripped by the awe of who God is. I said it at the beginning, but I think we too quickly lose that. We realize what we have been given, but we kind of push it aside and don't realize how dependent on God we are. We start to look outward we lose sight of the fact that we are completely dependent on God. At any moment, without God, as, as the, we had talked about before, we want to keep our heads above the waves, and without God constantly holding our heads there, we would be sinking. That is the kind of dependence on God that we have. And when we realize that, say, God, I'm amazed. But I'll be honest. We don't do that. We don't go before God and we say, God, you are awesome. We instead go before God and say, thanks. Thanks for what you have done. You put me here. As David said, you've you've given me rest for my enemies. I have a nice house. But thank you for where you've put me. 
We don't realize God's grip on our lives. Each one of us is hopeless. It doesn't matter if you have um, enough money to save uh, saved up that you think no matter what happens to my life, financially it will be okay. It doesn't matter if you have a, a supportive family around you. It doesn't matter if, if you are one of those people who is just able to work themselves out of any situation. None of us, without God in our lives, would be where we are today. God had to come to David and say, I took you from the pasture. I brought you here. Without me, you would be nowhere and we are the same way. King David was one of the most successful minds in the entire uh, Old Testament, and yet he needed to be reminded of this. If we're remembering, if we're remembering how uh, lost we are without God, then we ought to respond as David has. We need to respond with awe and with trust at God's gracious work in our lives, in awe of all that He has done and how far He has brought us in complete trust, saying, God, just like David, you're still working and I have no clue what you have next. Completely opening our hands. When we're aware of uh, His greatness, He wants us to come back to Him. And He wants us, as, to, as we grow, He does desire that we grow, but that we never lose sight of who He is. Never lose sight that any time we do something successful, any time we grow, any time we move a level that is because of His greatness and who He is. Maybe you have a, an awesome job. Maybe you say, God, this is exactly where you placed me and I'm doing a, a great job at this. Great. But never fail to say, God, I can't believe that you put me here. It's not by my own work, it is by yours. Maybe God has gifted you with uh, some uh, great kind of uh, personality and that you're an amazing listener. Or maybe you're one who's a great encourager and able to speak into people's lives and you say, God, this is fantastic that you have given me this opportunity. Don't lose sight of giving God the glory, saying, God, I'm awestruck at who you are. We need to constantly look to Him, go running to Him, saying, God, you've exposed uh, all that you have for me. And we need to realize, too, that no matter where we are, that it doesn't take any amount less or more of grace for God to keep us there. We come before Him worshiping and realizing His greatness. We've talked a lot about pursuing God over the past few months. As a church, we do so desperately desire, saying, God... We, we desire for you to grow. In this series, we have wanted you to pursue God in some different way. Whether it's uh, reading your Bible throughout the week, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in some other uh, form, we've been wanting you to pursue God. And, and our hope as a church is that you have grown. And our hope is that you continue to grow. That is what this series is about, but just 
as David needed to be reminded. We can't lose sight of the fact that God is moving us forward. And we need to respond, saying, God, you are awesome. And you're not done with me yet. You have so many more uh, promises in store. God has so much more for us. As we uh, close this morning, I would like for the prayer counselors to come forward. These men and women are here to uh, pray alongside of you. And if you this morning uh, are not in a place where you are saying, God, I completely recognize that you have done amazing things in my life. Talk with one of these people. Go go with them and say, God, I want to re-admit. I want to demonstrate that I'm in awe of what you have done. Or if you don't recognize that you completely uh, trust God with all that He has for your life, come before Him and say, God, I have open hands. Just as with David, do as you wish. I don't know what it is, but do what you would like. Or if you're functioning as you are in control of your own life, come pray with one of these people and just give it up to God. Realize that without Him that you would be nowhere as we continue to pursue God together as a church. Individually, day in and day out, I hope that we never stop being awestruck by what God has done in our lives. And I hope that with this series, as we pursue God together, as we continue that, one, it would not stop, that we would continue uh, meeting or, or reading or praying, that we would be growing our relationship. How awesome would it be if a year from now we could look back and say that was the catalyst. That as we studied David and how he pursued God, that it it moved us forward to do the same. And as we do that, I ask that we would fix our eyes on God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, that you have... uh, promised us so many things in Jesus Christ. God, I ask that we would not lose sight of the fact that without you that we would be nowhere. That just as David uh, came to the reality that uh, without you that he would still be a shepherd boy. That we would constantly be saying, God, you have brought me this far. And that as we do, we would be awestruck And we would be excited to see what you have for us next. In your name, amen.